Welcome to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series, hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University. The Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series is designed to highlight the three institutions that must work together to support and defend a free civil society. Joining us today is Dr. Court Roday. Dr. Roday is an assistant professor of economics at Ohio University, where he teaches public economics, economics of innovation, and managerial economics. He's had several projects funded by the National Science Foundation and the International Foundation for Research in Experimental Economics. Today, he will present Social Order in a Fragile State, Rio's Favelas. Decided that a 
Upon entering a building, we would stop and wait, hold the door for those approaching behind us. Just develop naturally. And this simple act is really only noticed when someone chooses not to hold the door. So we get a little upset, especially if we've got our hands full. Finally, we take markets where we exchange goods and services. These are inherently social institutions. Some examples involve an actual physical space like a local farmer's market. Other markets are better described simply as an amalgam of rules, customs, and practices that facilitate mutually beneficial exchange. Very little interaction other than a transaction. eBay is an example of this. The order observed in markets is typically adaptive. Sometimes the rules are centrally designed like but even then, the rules evolve according to what is good and bad about the existing arrangement. People behind you may respond to users' likes and dislikes and change things according uh, to their preferences. In other cases, the order is much more organic and evolves without intervention. Does this sort of regularity of behavior according to norms or rules, formal or informal, that I am referring to? Order provides predictability and allows individuals to form expectations about how others um, will behave and in return helps them adjust their own behavior to go along with what Adam Smith referred to as the social harmony. Now let us consider fragile states. First, a state in this context is a generic term referring to an organized social group that has some form of governance and sovereignty. This could be a nation, be a literal state within a country, a city, or in this case, improvised neighborhoods outside the city of the Asian era. A fragile state is one that is on the brink of collapse, where corruption and violence are part of everyday life, where the rule of law is weak and under threat. Fragile states are mired in poverty, and their citizens suffer from low life expectancy, inadequate education, limited access to basic services, and so on. Likewise, they experience the world's highest levels of infant and maternal mortality, and corruption. For example, scholars have estimated that fragile states account for 14% of the world's population. They account for nearly 30% of the world's population that lives on less than a dollar a day. Fragility manifests in a state's inability to meet citizens' needs such as human security, legitimate and meaningful political participation, and sound economic policies. Sadly, weak institutions inhibit economic progress, strain sociality, which only exacerbates fragility and further undermines the stability of institutions through a reverse cycle of decline. Inequality and uncertainty place greater stress on weak institutions, further deterring investment and inhibiting economic progress. While well, indices referring to subnational regions like cities or neighborhoods across the world are few, we can gain some insight looking at the quality of institutions at the national level. So the economic freedom of the world report, provides measures of national institutional stability. The report ranks countries along five dimensions, comprising the size of government, the rule of law, the establishment of sound money, the freedom to trade internationally, freedom from overregulation. It ranks Brazil at 137th in the world in terms of economic freedom. Brazil specifically ranks poorly on the rule of law and regulation due to the partiality of its legal system 
its lack of property rights, and a regulatory system that inhibits entrepreneurship. The Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom similarly ranks countries according to a similar methodology. Brazil ranks 153rd in the world and is considered to be mostly unfree according to their categorizations. Brazil ranks 27th out of 32 countries in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. The nation performs worst on the measures of the rule of law, poor public services, and political corruption. The US-based Fund for Peace annually provides an outlook on state fragility using analysis of 12 social, economic, and political indicators. So Brazil ranks 106 out of 178 countries overall due to an inability to guard against uh, demographic pressure, things like overpopulation, um, inability to provide services like education, water, health, violence, uneven economic development. So these national indicators effectively describe not only Brazil, but Rio's favelas, or the shanty towns on the hillsides outside of Rio de Janeiro. Agility also drives violent conflict, further affecting economic activity and straining institutions. In 2010, Rio experienced nearly 5,000 murders. And that number has remained about that high, growing a little bit since then. And half of these in 2010 were connected to the drug trade. Given a metropolitan population of about 14 million people, this translates into roughly 40 murders per 100,000 people, or six times the murder rate in New York City. Uh, a recent report that just came out has indicated that the measure has actually been about 60 murders per 100,000 people in the last two years. Violence is getting um, much worse recently. However, the murder rate in some favelas has been well over 200 people per 100,000. Exclusionary politics also drives virginity. Afro-Brazilians make up a large proportion of Rio's favelas. They regularly face political and social discrimination. Their history goes back to 1898, when ex-slaves sought to settle the hills outside the city. And since then, the citizens of the favelas, or favelados, have been marginalized by local government. The imbalance in political power between the rich and the poor allows the upper class to marginalize Vatilados, as the rich tolerate and even encourage military-grade responses to crime in the favelas in order to preserve the divide between the rich and the poor. This marginalization of Vatilados affects their access to education and employment. <coughs> A National Household Sample Survey estimated that 62% Favelados have not completed primary schooling, and that the unemployment rate of favelas is nearly 19%. Most who can find work do so in the informal economy, meaning on the black market. Not necessarily selling illegal goods. Uh, they're typically legal goods, but they don't have a license to those who do manage to find employment in the formal economy are estimated to earn between 10 to 47% less than their counterparts from other neighborhoods that are not considered to be fulfilled. And these individuals, and these studies control for the same occupation, the same education of the individual, the same age, race, and gender characteristics. So what this means is that there's a much lower return to education investment in capital for those who live in Countrywide institutional fragility is magnified in Rio's favelas, and it creates a void 
the drug fashions bill by providing customary law, public services, and economic opportunity This brings us back to the concept of social order within the favelas. So despite this fragility, social order exists within the favelas and involves dominant drug factions, humanitarian organizations, and corrupt police. The factions, which ruthlessly defend their territory and their profit, willingly tolerate and even protect humanitarian organizations whose primary objectives are to weaken the drug trade, to reduce violence. Social order generally develops through a natural selection of rules and conduct whereby more efficient rules survive and are imitated but are not always understood. The rules that are involved in Rio's hillsides make for an atypical social order, social order that renders this concept especially salient. As I mentioned, it involves the three primary parties, the drug factions, the police, and the humanitarians. To provide a sense of scope of favela life, hundreds of favelas surround Rio. They are amalgamations of narrow makeshift roads and pathways inaccessible to cars except for a few main roads. The drug trade appeared in the favelas in the 1970s because the topography was ideal for stockpiling drugs destined for export from Rio's harbors. Today, local illicit markets thrive and the factions remain in the hillside. The favelas lack government presence except for militaristic intrusion by the police. The drug factions fill this absence through the strict enforcement of the Ley de the Law of the Hill, which legitimizes the factions' dominance and keeps police out of sight. Many factions provide services that many expect from local governments, like clean water and welfare systems. On the whole, this directly increases the profitability of the faction's operations. So the fact that humanitarian groups openly operate in these spaces is puzzling in light of the control exercised by the drug factions. In a way, this is akin to an incumbent monopolist allowing an entrant to operate freely within its market. For instance, Missionaries keep favelados off drugs and encourage a wholesome, law-abiding lifestyle. NGOs like Viva Rio and Afro Reggae speak out against violence and dissuade young people from joining the factions. International institutions like Coca-Cola, the Ford Foundation, and IBM work to improve public safety, community development, and education. When we consider the roles factions, humanitarians, and Rio's military police play in everyday life, we see the semblance of a social order that has evolved through time. I argue that the larger order in the favelas re relies on coordination between the factions and favelados, whereby the factions build illicit enterprises while enforcing customary law and providing public services. Favelados, for their part, acquiesce the factions Force law and tolerate illicit activity and violence. By allowing humanitarian groups to operate openly, factions create among the favelados the common knowledge that they are willing to support the community. As long as favelados respect the law of the hill and refuse to cooperate with police, this promotes coordination and order within the fragile state. Although generating profits remains the faction's primary objective, permitting humanitarian activity to remedy some of the ills found 
in the favelas publicly signals the interest they have in coordinating with the citizens. This coordination creates a striking social order within the fragile state. Let's first discuss the factions in more detail. Factions deal primarily in drugs and arms, but they also deal in pirated cable TV, electricity, bottled gas, clandestine transportation, and protection racketeers. Rival factions, as well as corrupt police forces, compete violently for control of these enterprises. Now, only 1% of favelados participate in drug trafficking, but everyone faces danger because violent conflict with police is a nearly everyday occurrence. Nevertheless, favelados perceive order in the favelas to be strong because factions enforce the law of the hill and prohibit even the pennies of crimes and hold informal courts of justice. This helps turn the citizens against the state, the official state. For instance, minor offenses such as stealing, fighting, or domestic violence typically result in having a hand shot off. But the severity of punishment increases for repeat offenders. Right? So this is law enforced by the factions on those who live in the favelas permanently. Rapists, murderers, and anyone who co cooperates with police face torture and death. In addition to turning favelados against the state for its failure to provide order, Forcing the law of the hill avoids attracting police to the favela. The presence of the police, as you can imagine, disrupts drug sales and typically results in costly armed conflict. Thus, factions legitimize their presence and enhance profits by providing a semblance of stability in the face of the unpredictability of the police. With regard to humanitarian organizations, the favelas have long received humanitarian aid to alleviate extreme poverty the remedy of the dearth of public services. In 1947, Cardinal Jamie Kamada provided financial assistance and counseling. In 1955, the Catholic Bishop of Rio de Janeiro opened the Cruzada São Sebastião apartment complex in the favela Praia de Pico to, um, to land squatters willing to give up certain vices. In the 1970s, the Catholic Church set up Pastoral the favela to address the spiritual and material needs of the favelados. Now, in a perfect world, data would exist showing the impact of humanitarian action, such as its effect on faction uh, participation by the citizens and the youth who face very dire economic opportunities, see joining the faction as really the only way to make a living, and the effect on the prominence that the factions have in the favela as well as their profitability. However, we can arguably look at the rise of Protestant churches in Brazil as a proxy measure of humanitarian activity. Brazil was once the largest Catholic country in the world, but this began changing in the late 1980s. Missionary work proactively seeks to confront issues like alcoholism, drug abuse, poverty, and crime by emphasizing clean living, education, and family life. Joining these sets requires behavioral commitments, such as abstaining from tobacco, alcohol, and sex outside the bonds of matrimony, following strict guidelines regarding dress and social activities. Other non-religious organizations 
provides financial support to local NGOs working to improve the lives of Barilados through education, social activities, and interventions such as gun buyback programs. High-profile organizations like the International Committee of the Red Cross, its <coughs> programs provide basic needs like clean water, first aid, and education to favela youth. Lesser-known groups like Project Favela partner with NGOs like Dreams Can Be Foundation and think tanks like the New Economics Foundation to provide educational opportunities and alternatives to faction life. Importantly, these groups, whether or not religiously affiliated, operate openly in the favelas. We'll now consider law enforcement. Military police prevents crimes in Rio de Janeiro and keeps the peace, whereas the civil police investigate crimes. For two decades, starting in 1964, military police throughout Brazil is an arm of the federal military forces and has since maintained a militaristic approach of evading, invading and occupying the favelas by entering in armored vehicles, military-grade helicopters with heavy artillery. It also has a history of being used by politicians to segregate the favelas from the rest of the city. Rio's police notoriously exhibit brutality, criminality, and opportunism. They use their position to extort rents from local factions, willingly resort to armed conflict to enforce agreements with the faction leaders, and routinely invade the homes of innocent favelados and tortured suspects. Often, armed conflict supplants the dominant faction and allows police to appropriate profitable enterprises like drugs and arms. So rather than it be local, drug factions running these operations, it's the police who have moved in and continue operating. The police inflict ruthless reprisals when factions fail to live up their agreements. And if Badalados ever suffered from collateral damage from police conflict with drug factions, police simply claim the victims were part of the drug trade. Human Rights Watch in 2009 examined 51 such incidents and found that the forensic evidence in 33 of these cases clearly conflicted with official reports. And again, Human Rights Watch also estimates that real police kill nearly 1,100 people every year, or roughly one-sixth of all the violent deaths in Rio de Janeiro. But only four officers have been convicted of abuses since 2000. Instances such as these further motivate violators to side with the factions and refuse to <coughs> the police. It's not about humanitarians now. This sign on this building says, um, it's the culture group of Afro-Reggae, the only option for young people to avoid the wrong way. So it's where they meet, provide after school programs and things like that education. So I argue that we can consider the humanitarians as rivals to the local factions. They offer a substitute good to current and potential drug buyers at a price that includes time and behavioral commitments. They also thwart the supply of labor, trying to keep Faction, sellers and suppliers. The more the humanitarians succeed, the more the faction profits wane. However, the phenomenon can be explained using coordination and common knowledge. Concepts um, 
apply in game theory. So economists refer to situations where multiple decision makers can mutually improve their welfare by coordinating their actions as coordination games. The optimal decision of one person is dependent on the action of another person. However, not knowing what the other person's action might be makes coordination games difficult to solve without additional insight. For instance, understanding long-run dynamics between individuals involved can make coordination more likely. So think of things like reputation. You can build up cooperation over time because you want to build a reputation with the other individuals involved that you're likely to cooperate because it's mutually beneficial. So if the relationship between people is likely to endure over a long period of time, coordination can emerge. Common knowledge also helps facilitate coordination. Individuals in the game can somehow signal to each other that they are, what they are likely to do, and that removes any of the guesswork. I argue that the factions permit humanitarian groups to operate in favelas as a means of creating common knowledge. That is, it serves as a signal to the favelados that the factions intend to cooperate, conditional on their acquiescence to faction control. However, it is crucial that for any signal to work, the sender of the signal not only signals their intent to the receiver, but the receiver knows that the sender knows the signal has been received, thus the need for a public signal. Public rituals, rallies, and ceremonies have been identified as sources of common knowledge, especially with reference to supporting authoritarian systems. So game theorists Michael Chway writes, quote, I am more likely to support authority or social system, either existing or insurgent, the more others support it, close quote. Michael Polanyi wrote, quote, if in a group of men each believes that all the others will obey the commands of a person claiming to be their common superior, all will obey this person as their superior. All are forced to obey by the mere supposition of the others for this reason, those seeking authority create common knowledge through ceremony or ritual as they establish what Clifford Gertz described as socially established structures of meaning. So what sort of ceremony or ritual does Chue have in mind? He cites royal progresses as examples of what he calls saturation advertising. They created common knowledge by ensuring that witnesses to the progress knew a mass of others also witnessed it. If you're not aware of what a royal progress was, medieval times, you know, for instance, when the monarch would pass through a city or town, and everyone would come out and show their loyalty and fealty to the, to the monarch, signal, yeah, we're gonna put up with your rule, and we're not gonna break any of the rules, and so on. And he writes, quote, progresses are mainly a technical means of increasing the total audience because only so many people can stand in one place. The common knowledge is extended because each onlooker knows that others in the path of the progress have seen or will see the same thing. So permitting humanitarian work that undermines the faction enterprise is not a ceremony in the traditional sense, but it creates a public signal as missionaries and volunteers walk the streets and hold public events. In fact, one could argue Humanitarians perform the ceremonies and rituals that generate common knowledge that the factions license the charitable group's operation. 
An individual infers a willingness on the part of the faction to cooperate, but also knows that it is common knowledge. Other favelados know that he knows that he knows that they know. That makes any sense. This facilitates the coordination. For their part, the factions legitimize their authority and generate community co cooperation with a message, message that reinforces their authority while reminding Father Lapis that they are willing to extend an opportunistically helping hand. While there are cases of faction leaders performing personal favors in return for personal loyalty, these are far less common and obviously lack the ability to generate common knowledge. Therefore, public signals are more effective and are preferred. Without them, factions would have to contend not only with the rivals and the police, but with the father laws as well. I argue it is a misconception to attribute this behavior to altruism or paternalism on the part of the factions. Although most faction members come from the favela, they primarily seek profit. Faction leaders know that organizing a drug network within the community without legitimization is problematic and requires coordination. Tolerance on the part of the citizens for illicit activity requires proper incentives. Factions also employ other public signals like supporting neighborhood associations. Uh, they lobby the local government for public services and they fund social activities like dances. But these practices are mostly profit enhancing. Lobbying government garners valuable relationships with local leaders and politicians that can be exploited by faction members in the future. Financing community activities, such as neighborhood dances, attracts crowds of drug buyers from neighboring favelas, allowing humanitarian aid to send an arguably stronger signal of a willingness to cooperate because of the humanitarian group's opposing ideologies and objectives. Factions deliberately cut profits to create common knowledge to walk Of course, humanitarian groups respect the dominance of the factions despite working against their interests. They do not confront factions or their leaders directly. And these groups work with Favelados to speak out against the effects of conflict to persuade them to spurn what factions may offer instead. Factions reciprocate by offering protection to humanitarians against would-be criminals, and enforce, resti enforce restitution when anyone falls victim to a crime. So for instance, missionaries may be working in the favelas and may be held up, their watches stolen or what have The traffickers have been known to seek out the person who it was that robbed them, get their material, or their, their property back, and use some sort of violent signal, or send some violent message to the, to the uh, robbers. So over time, this approach evolved such that groups that openly confronted factions were likely to encounter harsh reactions that limited their success. Babilados benefit from supporting or at least acquiescing the factions' rule of law because it lowers violence and provides access to goods and services that are not provided by typical sources. The factions of Babilados could coordinate on other less desirable outcomes, for instance, where factions do not allow humanitarian do not provide public services, and are stricter and more violent. And the favelados whose mobility is constrained by their poverty will be forced to either yield completely to a more violent regime or attempt to overturn faction leadership by some other means. This would impose a considerable cost on the faction 
it would burden Fadilados whose limited resources cannot adequately finance public services and community defense. So we can liken this situation to Rousseau's classic story <coughs> that if you've taken game theory or micro, you may have seen uh, a game set up similarly to this. The stag hunt is a coordination game where individuals in a social group must decide whether to cooperatively hunt a stag or deer, um, a large but relatively uncertain source of food, or whether to hunt alone for hair or bunny. Acquiring a stag requires coordination. No one can kill it on their own. If everyone hunts for a stag together, each group member acquires more than just the morsel of hair that each person could obtain from hunting alone. However, if group members do not coordinate, the unwitting person who goes after the stag alone surely fails and would have been better off hunting the hair alone. Certainly a lower calorie count, but a more likely catch. Common knowledge among members quickly solves the coordination problem, whereby each person knows that the others will hunt stag and the others know likewise. Pareto efficient coordination occurs in the favelas between the factions and favelados, whereby the factions stabilize the community and the favelados do not interfere in illicit activities. The obvious presence of humanitarians at the behest of the faction leaders creates the common knowledge and the desired coordination and publicizes the intention so that every member outside the faction knows with whom the other favelados will align themselves. And Chue writes that, quote, Coordination problems include not only quite specific tasks, such as group hunting, but also overarching matters such as political and social authority. He goes on to say that authority includes more than consent and involves systems of social status, implicit and explicit rules of behavior, and the entire set of ideas and institutions that guide social interaction. Therefore, the rituals not only publicize the hunting between factions and fatherlanders, but also make a specific set of beliefs and rules on knowledge. This theory also explains why corrupt police forces struggle to supplant factions. The police fail to engender legitimacy in the community because of their abuse of power. Such violation of norms, the explicit disregard for human life and property, prevents them from assuming control of illicit enterprise. Although factions violently enforce the established rules, there is a connection between the violation of some rule and the resulting punishment. For instance, factions enforce the law of silence, which means favelados face certain death if they cooperate with police. This fosters common knowledge about the consequences of informing the police. These norms create the necessary common knowledge required to ensure coordination. The police, corrupt or not, tend to shoot at will their rules as they go along. So Rio's favelas are rife with violence, corruption, poverty. They host ruthless drug factions that operate union illicit enterprises and defend them savagely. They are in a real sense fragile. Yet in spite of this fragility, order has evolved in a form that is unique to these hillside communities. Drug factions administer social order, while the police are largely viewed as the enemy, even by those favelados who do not participate in the drug trade. Moreover, humanitarian efforts are widespread and are permitted by the ruthless factions. The prominence of the factions is due to the government failure. 
These de facto monopolists of force within each community supply law and order. Marginalization of these hillside communities means that the state has merely sought to control them within their own confines. As the drug trade has evolved, survival pressures have led factions to control the favelados, but also to seek their cooperation. Given that drug factions fight for complete control of every aspect of these communities, it is fascinating that they allow humanitarian relief within the favelas. The explanation that I posit is that the desire to create common knowledge facilitate coordination with the residents. In ultimate irony, factions that profit from selling destructive goods promote or at least do not inhibit the efforts of humanitarians working to undo the destruction they cause in order to create a mutual understanding among the locals that they are conditionally willing to cooperate. But no signal as common knowledge can count on others cooperating with the factions. Thank you for listening to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series. To stay up to date on all the lectures in the series, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. For information on upcoming lectures and other events and activities hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University, follow us on Twitter at Koch Center or on Facebook at Koch Center ESU.